السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته يا مرحبا مرحبا حياكم الله اهلا وسهلا ومرحبا مليون رحبو 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 حياكم الله هلا ومرحبا هلا والله هلا 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 Welcome to another episode of the Dark and Dower. I'm no, your host, it's, Adam it's, it's a special episode. A special, this is a very special episode to begin with. I'm with my co-host, Richard Cox. Richard, it's been a while. Good to be back, and good to be back for the special episode. Yeah, and with us today, to me, is a very special guy, a special episode of the Dark and Dower. Somebody I've, I've been trying to contact for a while, uh, Mansour Adeyipi. Madifi, you were born in Sana, Yemen, held without charge in the United States Guantanamo detention camps in Cuba from February 9, 2002 to July 11, 2016. On July 11, 2016, you and the Tajikistan captured were transferred to Serbia. His Guantanamo internment serial number is 441. Aladifi came to prominence in 2022 when he alleged that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis oversaw beatings and forced beatings at detainees at Guantanamo. Currently, you live in Belgrade, Serbia, where you write, you create artwork, you advocate for prisoner detainee rights, and you wrote a book, which is your memoirs at the time, Don't Forget Us Here, which was published in 2021 by Hatchet Books. Mansour, thank you so much for coming on, brother. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here today. And I uh, welcome all uh, our beloved viewers, listeners, even the people who don't like me. I like you guys. No worries. <laughs> no hard feelings. <laughs> you know, I like to, I always thank keep, for, yeah, cool. uh, yeah. I say I, thank uh, you for, for the introduction. I am Mansour Daifi, 441, Smiley Troublemaker. You can call me those names. Okay. I love those names. Uh, yeah. You had so, a lot of nicknames in the camp too. We're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. But I always, I always like to keep it simple and like to tell a story behind the story. And you were actually born in Sana, Yemen, and you grew up very poor. Uh, and you were born in the village of Rama. So what was yes. it like growing up in, in these early periods? You know, when you're born in those kind of mountain village, it was my world, you know. I, I just small village, I could see other villages and... Growing up, like jumping around, like hyperactive person, work on the farms with my parents. My father is a tribe elder, so there is like more discipline, more restrictions, more and so on, because our family is just us to be the face of the family of the tribe. I was very curious. I was a little, you know, <laughs> a little troublemaker in, in a way. It just like I, it's my personality. I can't. I was like a kind kid, but at the same time, very, very curious. And some, that sometimes to lead me into a lot of troubles. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, when I grew up, I grew up in a village where we, we have no amenity, uh, uh, you know, like infrastructure, no running water, no electricity, nothing. It just, you know, when the dark came, we have those ventures and one, two hours after we sleep, wake up early in the morning, we're preparing for school. My mother would wake up really early to prepare, to have to the oven and she used the wood to prepare the breakfast, tea or coffee and some butter. And after that, we go to school. Sometimes I would go to school without shoes because <laughs> it would get lost. Mm. And I, want, I don't want to get, I don't want to uh, be late for school because every day I would walk around like eight miles back and forth. You know, at least just every day to the so to those kids who was like, ah, oh, 
My father, my mom, take me to school. Guys, walk. You need to walk, guys. It's healthy. So sometimes when I got back from school, I would like go through my classes and because my father used to tell me, you know, I'm, you know, like, I'm not talking about your past. I'm talking you'll be the first one. So always I need to be the first. So like, there is no question about passing. The only thing, and also it's becoming the family, my brothers and my sisters. So it will also compete between uh, my brothers and sisters who will be the first this time. So we're always between the first, the second, the third, and so on. So yeah, if you get the second, the third, they're like, oh, you didn't do well. So <laughs> your mother named you Mansour, which means he was victorious. Yeah, and, uh, my name. That, yeah, you were yeah. smarter than other kids your age. Tell us more about them. So, yeah, my mother actually the one who raised us because my father always would travel to Saudi Arabia so then support the family. Because we had a farm, but the farms, you know, divided the the you know, with my father, my father and his brother, so it wouldn't support the family anymore. My mother also, her father was also uh, the tri the elder of the tribe, because that had been. You know, elder tribes get like married to each other, and she also brought well, well, and uh, uh, she yeah, like mostly we spend most of the time with our with my my mother, you know, she's a fine woman. So you you grew up in um in poor condition, but you met the sheikh at the Islamic Institute in Sana, who once told you that he needed your help, that he needed you to go to Afghanistan, and that when it was complete, you would be given a visa. And a letter of reference as well as money to go to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, can you elaborate further on what he wanted you to do over there? You know, uh, when we finished my um, secondary school, we didn't have high school in the right. in the village. So people would like when we finish, we go to see study in other uh, places, other mm -hmm. cities. So I had and my aunt she lives in, in Sana'a, in the capital. So my mother said, "Well, now you are you are a man now." So I'm like, ever since I knew myself, you are a man, you are a man, you are a man. <laughs> so, and when I went to the city, it was a different experience. Like, oh, this is the city, huh? I, it was like opening a, a new door to a new world, like experience light, buildings, cars, streets, signs. I couldn't sleep the first night. I would just, the morning I went to everywhere, to the shops, talking to the people, very curious and some of them knew, like, they said, tribal guy. They said, yeah, he's new here. They said, yeah. I, I even, there's like a, a tall building, like 25 floor. They're the tallest building in Yemen. And mm. I went there. It was like uh, made, built with, uh, covered with glass. And I was like, how this is possible? Like, you know? <laughs> so I went there. Then the police stopped me. They said, what are you doing here? I said, I guess I need to see. And he talked to the people. It was a different world, the way people talk, the cars, it just, you know. So then I started, started my school and I learned a lot. So when I finished my high school, I part-time, I studied in this institute and work at the same time, start working there learning and studying in like, uh, they are very good with the Arabic language. And I love the, you know, the language. So there was a student from different parts of the world and I will I work as um, like assistant for student affair, where like student came with their visas, passport, and I created a lot of uh, uh, people who knows at the airport, at the immigration, and and so on. So what by the end of 
1990s, there was the rise, the rise of Al-Qaeda and Taliban. And, uh, and there were like many, many people asking questions about, sorry, many people asking questions about Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and you couldn't find any research or a book or that time they used cassettes. Mm -hmm. And those cassettes started, um, Osama bin Laden, like audio cassettes start uh, spreading in Yemen at that time. So Saudi government, actually the one who was funded, funded the, uh, the institute and the Yemeni government too, you know, like it was legit. And they, the Sheikh was invited to, after the U.S.'s call and after the attack on this in Nairobi, Dar es Salaam and Saudi Arabia, they wanted someone who could write a book about the new rise of uh, Taliban and Qaeda and so on. And, uh, and the Sheikh said, okay, I'm going to write a book, you know, do encounter and dismantle this kind of new uh, ideology and so on. And one of his students, he was appointed to go to do the research, permission from the Yemen government, Yemen intelligence, and they need just assistant. They need someone who can, with him there, carry the bag and do stuff and, and so on. <laughs> and uh, for for almost like a year and a half, I was bugging the the head of the institute. I said, "Hey, I need to go to study the United Arab Emirates because he used to give recommendation. I've got scholarship." And he said, "Okay, okay." He didn't want to give me basically like, because I I have no you know I I have no big fat value. So then hmm. he told me one day, "Okay, help me. I will help you." He said, "I need to go with this guy." And I said, yeah, I would love to. I mean, this is a door for me. And plus, I will be able to travel for the first time. I One of the beautiful things in the sea, Sana'a City, I used to go to the airport just, just to to look at the airplane. You know, there is a story too. And in the village, the first time I saw the car, <laughs> you know, the first time like we have like once a week uh, market, all villages gathered and go to the place called a market. We call it the souk. And my father said, hey, you are a man now. We are going to get to take you to see the souk. I said, well, excited. Mm -hmm. So I got in our donkey because we didn't have cars. We have only donkeys because I never saw a car. Anyway, so on the way to the market, when close to the market, because I was in the donkey, my father was with others behind me. So I was close to the market there. I saw something really big and something coming fast father father bob bob bob, bob. like what's well, like something is here and i jump off the donkey and i start taking rocks start listening like throwing at the at that beast really like one <laughs> stop then a guy came out of that beast with the long uh, button and he said yeah he's like cursing so i went to high ground he said like come down i said no i'm trying to help you guys like a metallic beast and he was cursing, yelling. He was he's he came at me. So I started throwing rat at, at him. I said, Wallahi, if you come, I'm going to hit you in the head. Who was your father? Name your father. I said, I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> Our father came, he said, What's going on? He said, Your son break the the glass of the car because this is my first time to see a car. I was like, beast. You know, like my mother always told me like there is like uh, uh some beasts in our area, highness, but you know, it's not like a donkey, basically, like an yeah. animal. But that one is, it, it's, I never saw a car in my life. It was scary, it was big, and like there's people inside, and I wanted to help. 
<laughs> throw a rock. I broke the glass. So the guy was so mad, and you know, my father hung around, then my father like, calm down, you have to apologize. That guy told me, okay, throw the rock. I heard him, I said, no, you threw the, you know, the, the, bot, the, 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 the stick you have. Mm -hmm. So, and my father told me, like, this is his first time to see a car, and the guy was nice. He said, okay, come here. I was a little, like, you know, nervous. He said, this is a car, and you know, and we drive it like, okay, I was like looking, people inside, everyone laughed at me. So, and I I never stopped talking to about the car, a car, a car, a car. I went, <laughs> and I think my father, we need a car. <laughs> so You're when I got to the city, when I get to the city, I, I, I already know about the airplane now from school, but I never saw actual one. So I used to, the best place, I used to go to the airport. So whenever I get a chance, I would be buying food, a walk sometimes, you know, and go there, watch the people, watch the airplane, so on, like, I'll be able to travel. So, yeah. <laughs> what so I, was... I mean, it is an experience to be in a, a big city outside of, like, where you grew up. It must have been a different world. Yeah, it's a different world. Like, the first time I arrived at Sana'a, it was, it was almost night, and I saw a lot of flights and you know, a lot of cars. I was like, and my brother was explaining to me. I was like, fix glue to the to the window, looking, and I see moving people, cars, signs. You know, it's kind of like what's going. When I went to the electricity to my aunt's house, I <laughs> started going to the laundry machine, going to the TV, going like everywhere. I was like, what's going? <laughs> Who is that? She said, Who is this? Like, Jinny came from? Like, he just. Yeah, like I couldn't even control myself, asking questions, turning things up and down, you know. So, so when I uh, when the sheikh wants, they need just someone who would help, you know. I and I said, okay, I have no problem. We get recommendation from Yemeni government to the Yemen embassy, Yemen embassy in Pakistan, to everything like we're going there, so can they help us? So basically, our job was research to go there. To collect as many information about the group or the ideology to collect materials to talk to some people to interview them to it's like he wants to try to book and he wants to try to book based on fact based on real knowledge you know what's going on there and this guy he was really smart and that guy who went there he was also he already visited afghanistan before so i was just his assistant assistant so this is my story. I was only 18 years old. I was, you know, for me, it's okay. One month, two months, I will get back. Mm -hmm. Then I'll be traveling to finish my, I was, I wanted to finish my college education, study IT, and I have like dreams. So that was, yeah, that was my trip to, uh, to Afghanistan. And from there, you know, when you arrive to Afghanistan, you feel, you feel like you are moving through time to the middle centuries. Mm -hmm. How the people behave, how the people like were dressed. The only thing connect you to the modern life, the motor cars, mm -hmm. uh, the motorcycle and the cars. Other than this, like the 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 houses, the people clothing, and you know, it's just and also the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You can see scars of that though destroyed the uh, machines. Mm -hmm. In Kabul, almost every building 
have a wound or have like uh, bullets and, and, and so on. So it was like a different experience. And the first time I get to the airplane, I fought with the with the flight attendant. She he asked me to put the the flight seat. I said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not a cow to tie myself. And she said, Mansoor, this is for you. I said, I don't care, I'm not doing it. I'm like, oh, this is the first time. Because like they call us tribal men, you know, like we are kind of like we didn't accept things easily. Like, why I should tie myself? Someone tell me if the airplane something happened. I said if something happened, it's not gonna survive anyway. <laughs> so I I recorded the, a video about my trip to Oslo just last month, and I I talk about my first flight and this this one my second flight in my life. So in between like twenty two years. And this is this is right after nine eleven too, and this is when the United States became heavily involved in looking for. Bin Laden and Al Qaeda and the Taliban. No, no, I I went before nine eleven. I went I went in June. I left. Yeah. Oh, you went to June of two thousand one. But it, yeah, but yeah. after, but it was like shortly afterwards, the United States became involved with Afghanistan again. Yeah, I mean, but in Afghanistan, we didn't know what happened. We had no idea that nine eleven happened because right. when you arrived in Afghanistan, there was nothing connected to the outside world. Not no TVs, no, right. no phones, no, absolutely nothing. And I mean. I mean, we didn't need the phone, just we have a mission to finish and so on. And our point contact in Afghanistan was a Saudi charity organization. And, you know, that's the way how we, one day we were in the restaurant of the 9-11 and we heard that there was an attack on the United States. And like they they said terrorist attack, and but we didn't, honestly, we didn't pay much as, as, as mm -hmm. attention to it because we are not connected to anything. Then when we get back to the to the location of the charity, they said, hey, the head of the charity said, hey, we have instruction to liquid everything and leave. Later on, 10 years later in, in Guantanamo, I came to know that the charity organization was actually Saudi Intelligence Front. Anyway, like <laughs> connecting the dot. Yeah. Anyway, so he said he got instruction from, from Saudi Arabia to leave and he's leaving and he said, you you have to leave too. So at that time, I, I came I have come to befriend one of the guys who works there, and he's, they they start looking at everything. They have a lot of medicine, dates, blankets, clothing, and and the, the money. They have a lot, a lot of things. And they told one of them said, "Mansoor, hey, would like to help." I said, "Yeah, more than happy." What should I do? He said, "Just accompany me. We start putting stuff for medicine, like uh, logistic stuff, you know." And that's what he said. Okay, we're going to go to this city, and after that, take the car and drive to Pakistan and sell the car and so on. And we were pushing the road on the way, and uh, you know the rest of the story. Well, yeah, the, you know the United States were dropping leaflets for rewards for Bin Laden and Al Qaeda fighters and Taliban fighters, and yeah. um, so. After 9-11, you know, the CIA start working with the North Alliance and the people start buying people loyalties. And also the leaf, leaf, uh, US airplanes start throwing leaf, leaf, uh, leaflets, yep. offering a large bounty of money if anyone would submit terrorists, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, whatsoever. And it could change your life, you know, 5,000, 10,000, depend on the person you bring. The, the higher the rank, the more, the more pay you, 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 you got. So I was we were, we were kidnapped, one of the Lord Lord, and another world lord came and take took us as guests. Then we were handed to the CIA. 
So one of the things that's in the car, I was driving the car. So <laughs> because I I guess got my driving license, I was like, hey, I need to drive. I and I had like a white turbine, and the white turbine, sorry, white turbine, and the white turbine in Afghanistan at that time were only by the Taliban high ranks, you know, Mulawi, Mullah, and so on. And there was also a radio, big radio, like people how they communicate. There is no uh, cell phones. And they said this this guy is a Qaeda commander, you know, he's he's hmm. white turbine, car. A radio, and there's a medicine. There was some stuff, so I was sold to the CIA as Al Qaeda commander. And do you think they really believe that the Northern Alliance? Did they really believe they you were an Al Qaeda commander, or was it just a case of? So, but when they saw me with the, when yeah. you saw you, you think with simple-minded people when they saw you like in the white turban that you are someone, because the white turban weren't only by Al Qaeda by Taliban commanders and leaders. So I tried to blend in. So at that time, like I didn't know. Then my friend told me, yes, the white uh, turban, the head, regular Afghanis don't wear it. Only you can see you are uh, in like those kind of mullahs or maulawi or like high ranks. So from there, also the payment, the more, the higher the payment, the higher the rank you told them, the more money you got. And from the CIA, they, they were looking for someone. His name is Adil Egyptian. And I was taken to the black site the worst period ever so they started you know it's hard to go through it again it's just one of the worst and darkest period in my life so from there i was called adil from egyptian qaeda commander and money laundering traveling involving nairobi Salam, you know a lot i admit to every single one of them the problem mm. was with the details i didn't have I, and i couldn't make any details Three months, I almost, I was, I faced death many times. There were no limitation. And there was other people who might die there because they, all of a sudden, they just silence. After three months, I couldn't even walk. Someone came, an old man, he came, he took the hood of my look at me. And he was talking a little and like, la, 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 la. After that, I was shipped to Kandahar prison and spent there around like three weeks. And from there, to the unknown, to Guantanamo, where I spent around 15 years. So this was the, the journey to Guantanamo. I mean, I we could talk for hours and hours about just the journey to Guantanamo, the airplane, the process station, the treatment. So when they come to deport me to Guantanamo, we didn't know when, when Kandahar prison, I was kept in a hangar because I, I got interrogation with the guards, then they, they moved me to, they have, um, we call it a hunger, you know, where a, make, uh, a makeshift uh, uh, place, mm -hmm. dark, there's like bright lights, two towers. In the middle, there was like cells, not cells, it was like there was a bar barbed wires. Mm -hmm. And there was like, they used to tie us in a pool as like punishment. There was no walls, nothing. Only barbed wires like like a circle, and they put in the in the middle. And when they take us, they just it's like on top of of each other. So when they come to take us, they just remove the barbed wire and take us to interrogation. So we like shackled 
24-7. So when they come to drag me to the uh, airplane for to, to Guantanamo, I, they took us to something, the process station where they like tents, they tie us like that stand and they start shaving our bodies, you know, it's, you know, a lot of humiliation and, you know, female guards twerking, moving their asses, making fun of our genitals, just a lot, a lot. I spat on them and get a lot of beating. They put duct tape over my mouth and they would also sign around my neck, beat me with big letters. Then they put me in orange jumpsuit. Uh, then they dragged me to an airplane, set me on the floor. Then spent around 40 hours. You know, they until we arrived at Guantanamo. When we arrived at Guantanamo, again, the process station, we arrived there. They dragged us first to arrive. Then the Marines came to take us to uh, Marines, to a ferry. Then to a bus. The bus went on the ferry. Like, I feel the sea. The, this may I wrote article in the New York Times called "On Our Prison in the Sea" in 2017. Then from there, when we arrived, they forced us to sit on our knees for hours. I personally I couldn't because I always like laying the floor. They beat you like on your knees, in your knees, shouting, yelling, and I like hooded, shackled, gagged. I mean, I wish they just I I died. I like many times. Oh Allah, please take my soul. I cannot take it any longer. And uh, I was taken to, uh, that was also like one of the things, you didn't know what, you didn't know what to expect, you didn't know what's going to happen to you. And you, I, I was so young and i like, okay, they're going to kill me now, they're going to kill us now. So one of the things that happened on the airplane, a prisoner, he needed to use the toilet and he was yelling and most of us just did it like this. And he was, calling the guards, hey, hey, toilet, 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 toilet. So what they did, they, we heard someone in the airplane saying, hey, brothers, prepare. So your prayers, they're going to throw us from the airplane. Imagine in the middle of the way and someone, hey, hey, prepare. They're going to throw us from the airplane, from the gate. Oh, Allah, like really scary voice, you know. Oh, Ya Rabbi, this is the moment. When we arrived at Guantanamo, it's like, who that brother said that? He said, what of they said, yeah, I am. What they did, the guard took him, put him in the bucket, and they turned on the fan, and he thought they opened the, the gate of the airplane. And I was like, you know, just, we, we will never forget that, because we thought, okay, the moment. And his voice was really, really scared, like, hey, brothers, brothers, prepare <coughs> for death. They're going through us. Say your prayers. Yallah. <laughs> Imagine, like, you're being hooded. Yeah. Their moves in your like, what? And you are waiting when you, your turn. Mm. Like, every second. So any touch, I used to, the guards used to be like every ten ten because I have a sign, and every time someone touches me, okay, I am next, I am next, I am next. Mm -hmm. I left that moment until we arrived. So the process station where they made us to sit on our knees for hours and hours, then they would come drag you, and I start cutting your cloth. You see, just scissors, and violently, and there's like a shield on you. 
I still, you are hooded. You didn't see nothing. I felt like there is a hose of water, like pressure of the water. Then brooms, then soap, like, did you see the brooms you cleaned for the large one? They used those brooms to give us a shower like that. And they were like, turn around and like, and after that, they took us and like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, they, they did anal search. It was like, also the way they did it, it just so humiliated. Over, they keep repeat over. Do you like it? Do you want more? So I fought with them. I was beating too. So they dragged me to my cage. They took the fingerprint. They took, uh, they took the hood, like take a photo, put it back immediately. Then I was dragged to the cage. The cage again with the FC team. So they threw me there, sat on, on one of them, like put his knee on my neck and the rest. They want to send you a message, like, you know, they want to, you know, it's like to me, scare you or whatever. So someone, I, they threw me in the cage. I was like, they removed everything, the hood, the duct tape. The, I was like, just naked there looking at myself, like, and I saw people like sitting like this with the an orange jumpsuit and the guard shouting, no talk, look down. No stand, you cannot stand. When there's a new group arrives, no stand, no talking, no looking. All the prisoners have to look set, look down like this, sit, and no turn, you cannot turn, you cannot do nothing. I was like just looking, and the guard was talking to me, and I just I didn't care. I need to cover my ass, basically. So I started putting like the orange uh, suit to wear, and it was like two, two buckets. At the beginning, I didn't know what's war for. It was one, I need to drink water, I need, and you know, like, and the, my neighbor, Danish, guy's uh, like, brother, just sit, they will beat you. I said, why? <laughs> I was like, shut up, shut the fuck up. So I was like, why? So they opened the door and they can just beat me, I tried to, so I just, I was like, why, why? You were like, well, I was like asking questions. Why that happened? Happened. So this, like, when I arrived there, when they finished putting everything in cages, now people can have, but no talking. You you cannot talk. You can look at the guards. You can't. You can't. You can't. So I was like, try to talk to each other, like pretending that we're not talking. And what's this place? Nobody no no nothing. I said there is a sea. I need to pray. What is the direction to Mecca? Like we had no idea where we were. Like bright light, and you can see nothing. So yeah, sorry. You can ask question. I, I just uh... no. Um, you know, it, it seemed that the the object of all of this is to make sure that you never concentrate on one issue. You have to. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you're with. You don't know what's going to happen to you next. And this is based, this is physically, it's primarily psychological torture, which is what the essence of Guantanamo actually was, besides the physical uh, torture that happened. Yeah, you know, they, they, they keep you disoriented that way. So, and also they like drive you to the no sleep, no eat, no nothing. And the group after us, when they arrived, you go straight to the interrogation. and after they give you a shower and they intentionally humiliate people in the in the search. It's mm. like rape. And mm. that 
it's like a wound. It's like something we, you know, for us it was, it is, it's still, it's like, and many, many prisoners would deny that, that nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody to mention, to think about. It's like one of the worst things. And it happened over and over again. So you go to the interrogation, interrogation, people don't know what they were talking about, what they say. Just, you totally like, uh, uh. <coughs> thank you. Basically, you didn't know what you were saying. I'm like, yes, you need you need to get this over. You need to sleep, you need to eat, you need to, because you cannot even carry yourself together. So that's it was like part of the interrogation uh, process and program there. So then uh, when you arrived at Guantanamo, we, at the beginning, was come back straight. Mm. And there was no rules. Different teams of interrogation, CIA, FBI, NSA, military intelligence, Homeland Security, who's these guys? You know, DIA, just everyone like, what they want? What? Some of them treat you good, some of them like treat you, some of them beat you. And one time we kept until that way, until two, in the end of 2002. And this was the fun began, like the real shit started when General Jeffrey Miller arrived. Mm, mm. So when he arrived, he he there was also some kind of conflict between the intelligence agencies. And so what he did, he unified them and he created what they called Guantanamo Task Force. And he is he's the one who wrote the Guantanamo SOP. Uh, standard operation uh, procedure mm -hmm. like and he started de developing the interrogation <laughs> technique or the torture technique so <clears throat> basically he was the camp commander and there was the base commander and the south command commander what he did he skipped all the the chain of command and he created a channel Communicating directly with George W. Bush and uh, uh, Rumsfeld uh, and Dick Cheney. Right. And so what he did, so the interrogation and his, and they, when uh, Rumsfeld issued the memo of torture, he was started developing that at, in Guantanamo. And during his time in Guantanamo, he went to Iraq before he was deployed there. He went to a visit. I remember the first night he arrived there all of us, almost all of us, get, get beaten. And then he started the interrogation again. The torture, the uh, safe deprivation, the waterboarding, and the, you name it. So until end of 2004, I think, then he went to Iraq to get it. So yeah, uh, General Jeffrey, one of the worst periods in Guantanamo. You just answered the question, Mark, because I was going to ask you about Jeffrey Miller, because um, yeah. he was the general of the intelligence and detention at, at uh, Guantanamo. Yeah, even one of his victims, not just us, there was like also two. James C. Chablin was a West Point graduate, oh, Army yeah. captain came to Guantanamo as a chaplain. When he opposed the torture and the desecration of the religion, he was accused of espionage, aiding the enemy. And again, he was put in orange jumpsuit. He was arrested. And he was also uh, classified as enemy combatant. 
So also there's another um, Ahmed Al-Halabi, Syrian interpreter. He was also, I think, uh, Air Force major or something. He was also was arrested, the same thing, alongside James Yee. If you, he, he, I think he copied some of some materials for the prisoners and called like espionage. Actually, there was stuff in the books and he copied them because helping James Yee. It, it just... When people like didn't like what the general defender was doing, and he viewed them as obstacles, get rid of them. Accused of espionage, aiding the enemy, it just tells of chaos. Miller believed you were either an Egyptian recruiter or an Al Qaeda general, right? And then, if I understand correctly, the fact that you didn't give details led them to believe that you've been trained in counter-interrogation techniques, which led them to then try and interrogate you harder yeah, I mean, like, and, and so on and so on. Is that... We were trained by Al-Qaeda to counter uh, interrogation technique. So, and then now they have to come with something in counter, in counter inter interrogation technique. They used to tell me that you train well, they are going to break you at some points and, and, and so on. And they also talked to other prisoners about me, shot in photos and like, who's this guy? He's an Egyptian. And some of the prisoners, actually, they said, one of them said he saw me in the North Alliance. Some of them said they saw me in Tora Bora. One of them told him he saw me in Tora Bora. I said, hey, guys, just one of me chose one place. Hmm. They said you were uh, you were assigned by Sam Bin Laden to coordinate the withdrawal from the 55th Brigade. And in Tora Bora, they said, someone said, yeah, he was, you know, in, in contact direct with Sam Bin Laden, how to lead the the battle i said wow <laughs> mm. so basically there was i mean it was a big mess even from the integration you know they brought people to guantanamo they have no profile no photos no names nothing the mission the cia mission and the army to bring people there and they're going to sort the files but it was a big mess when you are after guantanamo also george w, george w bush and his administration they wanted to, to assure people we won the war on terror. So we brought the bad people. They put us in orange jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. And those the worst of the worst terrorists on planet, on the planet. Vicious killers. So even the guards, when they when they the first time they arrived to Guantanamo, you can see they're very nervous, you know, like um, afraid. Later on, when they come to live with us, because we become part of each other's life. They said, guys, they told us you are killers, you are terrorists. They told us if you just overlook you in, in, in a matter of split of a second, you will break our necks. I said, okay, can you teach us how? <laughs> so that, crazy, crazy, you know? So because the guards get conflicted, because if you told them, hey, those guys, terrorists, killers, blah, blah, and so on, hmm. But when someone live with you, serve you your food, watch you eat, drink, shit, sleep, fight, pray, just talk, you know, the fact does not match what, what they were told. And some of them are, I know some of them are, end up to become victims because some of them, mm -hmm. they didn't want to abuse the prisoner. They didn't want to get to on the torture. And they said, guys, we are sorry. This is not who we are. And some of them actually get demoted, some of them punished. We were not just the only victims. There were also guards and camp staff who tried to start for their humanity, who start, who tried to stand for the way they believe in. They would get punished. They would get demoted, got punished. Some of them were actually kicked from Guantanamo. Yeah. Uh, prisoners were one of the only victims because Guantanamo, it contradicts our humanity.
And those people, there is heroes from those guards, nurses, camp staff. They were heroes, you know. They're like nobody tell tell about their stories, and I tried to shed light on that. They were victims just like us, you know. You know, when when you were when you're in these, because they they sent you all over the place, kept moving you around. Uh, but you had a core group there from reading the book, and there was one individual that you actually were very close to, um, and I want you to talk about him a little bit. Wada al Hamashi. Yeah, we we form a group called the Red Eyes. I mean, the Red Eyes is like Yemeni name for people who is integrity, care, people who care for others, and so on. It's not like bad people, just. You said this guy's a red eye, I mean, like he's a man with his words. So when the abuse starts in the camps, you know, people deal differently. Some people just, the measures is just not to do nothing because jail was enough for them, you know, just too much, it was too much, too much. Some of us mostly came from background, tribal background. It just, it's, it's our nature, you like, I, I cannot accept that. And also, it hurt me more when I saw other hair get hurt. So we start just reacting, you know. We were just reacting to whatever they threw at us. So they move up to solitary confinement. And they were, we met again with those people and we started, hey, we, we need to do something. And it took us like months and months, you know, to years sometimes, people to join, people to recognize. And it wasn't, when I say recognize, it's not in the way you recognize it, just we understand each other. So Wabah, Wabah was, uh, I think he was with the Taliban. And he told him, look, he said, yeah, I was with the Taliban. And he told him, I'm not hiding that. I have nothing to be afraid of. If you, uh, if you uh, uh, think I did something wrong, try me, you know. And they like him because... Guard and camp staff, they also like him. He was very, very straight, very honest, very fair person, you know, kind of a personality, he's a rare personality. You know, if if any one of the prisoners would just insult the guards, he said, no, you cannot do that. You know, we still have to respect each other, treat each other fairly. He, uh, in 2009, he died in the BCU, and there was some kind of negotiation with his family. I don't know, but he told me the American would negotiate with his family. There was something I, I couldn't understand, really. And he told me that he will, he will get released soon because there, there was some kind of negotiation. Wabah became like one of the leaders. He was like sacrificing a lot. And it, does, it didn't because he was a fighter or was with Taliban and so on. No, it was as a person, you know, which is like as a human being, regardless. Uh, you are, uh, regardless of who you are, guard, the detainee, it just uh, we stick to our, to our humanity. But in Guantanamo, the majority of the prisoners I found there, and they have no connection to Taliban or Qaeda whatsoever. There was, you know, students, teachers, charity workers. Mm -hmm. You have people who were sold by their own neighbors to get their lands. People yeah. who, you know, they brought people from different parts. You have 15 nationalities, more than 20, 20 languages spoken. People brought from different parts of the world, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, from uh, Bosnia, from Mauritania, from United Arab Emirates, from Saudi, from Yemen, from Africa. So different stories, different. 
So Wabah become a leader, try to recognize, try to protest, try to stop. We all try to do our parts. You know, sometimes they will shift us from block to block, from camp to camp. And we try just to react, stop the torture, try to... But that's what they want you. They want you to react. SOB keeps changing, guards keep changing, everything keeps changing. Uh, and interrogation never stopped, interrogate teams after teams after team, question after questions, and you know, then they never stop. They were also psychologists were part supervised the the interrogation, you know, and they keep developing, they keep learning, they keep, you know, modifying whatever they were doing. There's a point, and I found this probably the most chilling part, or one of the most chilling parts of, of the book, was when you meet a chief interrogator who acknowledges to you he knows that you're not involved in Al-Qaeda, he knows you're not a different recruiter, and he knows because you're clearly not Egyptian and you're far too young to be that person. So he, he really knows that. And this must be incredibly uplifting, only to have any uplift dashed, because he doesn't care. And because he has to report back to Washington and he offers to to essentially uh, treat you better and give money to your family if you'll work for him and inform on the other inmates. Could you could you speak to that part, please? That, that was just really poor. I, I, know, I don't doubt a lot of the interrogators came in of this belief that you were the most dangerous man in the world and they had to crack you. But when when you have someone, it's almost like um, in that very famous book, uh, Dordievsky, on um, the the Inquisitor, where the Inquisitor knows his victim is actually Jesus, but he carries on in, in, with the um, the torture anyway because it can't it can't threaten his institution, and um, the, the the fact that you're innocent can't be allowed to get in the way of Washington, uh, what Washington yeah. DC you requires, know, and all the rest. Interrogators, you cannot say this an innocent man because there is a huge responsibility. Mm. So basically, even there in some of the interrogators. Even if they, not everyone, I believe not everyone was bad, but even those, they won't put themselves to say, well, this guy's an innocent and so on, because that that will put them some question. Imagine, I told you those, Jim C. and Ahmed al-Halabi were in prison accused of espionage and classified as enemy combatant. Those men was members of the U.S., uh, military. One of them actually was a major, the other was a captain. Uh, the head of the CIA at that time in Guantanamo, he called me and he said, today it's your day, special. I'm going to meet you only once. So I was okay. And they took me to a special room and I sat there and he started, you know, I need to work for me. There's a lot of people we didn't know nothing about. And we need help. And I, I was like, you know, honest with him. I said, look, I cannot do that. I said, well, you, you don't to be, to be munafiq? I have a I said, no. Okay. He said, okay, where is Al-Qaeda? Where is Allah Akbar? Where is Abu Laden? Where is Hayya al-Jihad? I said, it's not my job. He said, what should, what should I tell the White House and the Congress? We have only teachers, uh, students, charity workers. Where is those people? I said, it's not my job. He stand. He said, "Okay." He had like a copy of the Quran, like start reading, and he was speaking broken Arabic too. So 
And I told him, like, you know, I have done nothing. He said, I know. But always, there is always, word, I swear, word by word, I remember those until now. He said, there are always victims in war. Consider yourself one of them. And like, that was really, when someone knows that's who you are, I just, I, I looked at him. He stood, he put his uh, Holy Quran in his bag. Sure. He stood up, looking at me, went to the door, and he said, Nick Nafsak, like, fuck yourself in Arabic. I just threw myself my head between my knees. Like, I cried. You know? It just, someone knows who you are and just consider yourself as a victim. Just, it's so cruel, so cruel until that day. You know, those, you say, you might beat you, torture you. They might something, but that person told you, I know. But they didn't care. They didn't care. Everyone come grab your file. Again. Okay, that person, that, and go on. It wasn't about the truth. It wasn't, you know, Guantanamo wasn't never be, been about the truth or about, Guantanamo has another mission totally. It turned to be an experimenting lab on prisoners first. Mm -hmm. Also to be a propaganda of war and terror, we detain those bad guys. And because if you are going to launch one of the biggest military campaigns in US history, your people will ask you, where are the bad people? Where, where they need to see some something. And Guantanamo, one of the most secretive prisons in the world. Why? Because there's something wrong there. Until that day. Until that day. Secretive, almost expensive. Until that day, like, because there's something wrong. They don't want you to know the truth about Guantanamo. I just yesterday, two days ago, three days ago, when the Showtime canceled the interview with Vice about the, the Guantanamo candidate, about Ron DeSantos. No. So I'm writing an article about it. In like, the truth must be told, you know? And many people who are Guantanamo knew that prisoners have no connection whatsoever. You can talk to all the lawyers. So that was really hard. And that was that really early. And they never stopped the interrogation, the accusation, and, and so on. I can I can show one of the one of the photos. Uh I'll try to share it with you. And like how the interrogation, how the interrogation changed. You know, in 2002, when I arrived at Guantanamo, they said he's Al-Qaeda commander. And 9-11 insider. <clears throat> in 2016, they said unclear if he actually joined Al-Qaeda. So I had to fight with the PRP to tell them either say he's Al-Qaeda or he's not Al-Qaeda. Wallahi, they said, we cannot just simply say we detain an innocent man for 15 years. We need to say something. In my face. Hmm. So yeah, I'll share the photo with the uh, with the Miami Herald. It was reported by uh, K. K. Rosenberg. Oh yes, yeah, New York Times. Yeah, no, at that time she was working for the uh, for the uh, Miami Herald. Miami Herald. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. 
Yeah. She's a prolific reporter out of Guantanamo as of late. Can you see the middleman there? Yes. Yes. Can you read? No, I can't read. I will try to send it to you. I didn't have your contact or oh. I will try to, to share to to send it that, to I'm actually going to put my number in the chat. So I, I, just to show how they didn't care. They know. Just I send it to your uh, to your uh, uh, my email. No, Twitter. Yes. Okay. It, just when you click on it, and you see how they shift the narrative. At the beginning, I mean, like Al Qaeda commander, nine of insider. Do you know what does it mean, nine of insider? Someone who right. Then after that, they don't want to say he said Al Qaeda, and they have interrogated. Tenth of thousand, torture tenth of thousand people, and I said it's a, and my gov my own government, the head of Yemen intelligence came to Guantanamo in the room with the interrogators. He said we know Mansour, he has no connection whatsoever. But yet, it's not about the truth. The truth is the first victim. It's just about their own truth. Imagine like after fifteen years, unclear doesn't make. They, they said, you know, we cannot say we detain an innocent man for 15 years. So basically, yeah. So between 2002 and 2010, we call it the dark age. Until 2010, sorry, between 2002 and 2010, we call it the dark, dark age. Torture, abuse, hunger strike, death, and you name it. Then when Obama was ele elected, we had hope when he said he's going to close Guantanamo. Mm. When he failed to close the detention, they relaxed the rules and it became the golden age. They didn't change the rules. They just relaxed the rules. We we went to uh, negotiation with them about the, the living condition, about the, you know, the the life and the community living. And we got mostly what we asked. We got family phone calls. We got video. We got TVs, newspaper, classes, art class, English class. We got um, video games, we got DVD players, we get books, movies, and so on. We got, you know, uh, refrigerators, microwaves, better food, better health care, and so on. And that lasts until 2013, when John Kelly, you know, he's the southern, the south, the south commander. The army took over from the navy in 2012. He didn't like the situation. And again, they sent us to the dark age again. And John Kelly is, uh, he was the uh, chief of staff of Trump after that, when he was uh, in presidency. So, and he was against, also he was against the closure of Guantanamo. Like Ron DeSantos. DeSantos, we met him in 2006. Habibi Roni, it seems here. Yes, <laughs> I I did this when he was uh, when the Vice News journalist asked him about me in, in Jerusalem in Jerusalem uh, conference and he got upset. So I I I sent him a message like, "Calm down, my friend. We are friends." So yeah. <laughs> my, you know, my... one thing about your book is that one constant that I saw besides the torture, was that 
well, as you said in the book too, nothing makes sense here. And so with that, I always wanted to ask, how did you, how did you manage to stay sane? So you wrote about certain things about Guantanamo, the simpler things in life that many people neglect. You wrote about the sea. You wrote about iguanas coming to your cage. And I, and I like to like to explain about how did this give you a short reprieve of the insanity, which was a welcome to you? I mean, yes, because when you arrive at Guantanamo, we had no shared life with each other. Mm. Like literally, you arrived, you became just a number. Mm. So, and you don't think about also you you know why you were there and for how long and what would happen to you? Just nothing. So everything, it just, I don't know how to explain it to you. It was like that feeling. There was also language barriers with others. There is doubt who is who. Is who. And um, so time we started, you know, interacting with each other. But also the more, but what makes you as a person, as a, like, as a, a human being, as an individual, unique human being, are our memories, knowledge, experiences, relationship, emotions, our, uh, you know, our names, that part of, it's like, I call it our second DNA, your knowledge and so on, because if someone take your memories, you will show knowledge. So that's what we brought with us to, to Guantanamo and that I couldn't take. So that's how that helped us to survive. I wrote an article, if you Google it, called The Beautiful Guantanamo. I just extracted the worst things and how we managed to survive at Guantanamo. We had each other as, you know, the hardship and the difficulties, the Tosha forged really strong brotherhood and friendship. And especially seeing those iguanas there, like a princess, know the guards. If someone like beat you and torture and abuse you, you can see that animal came like a princess. And when she walks, the guards has to give away. Give away. Mm -hmm. We come to know later that it's like a protected species and the guard has, if anyone hurts the iguana has to be 10,000, I'll go to 10 years in prison. And we said, like, I challenge you just, just to think to hurt that iguana. <laughs> so it become also like you find, you know, when someone took everything from you, but they think they did, but still seeing the light, the beautiful sky, you know, those animals, the sea, uh, it was amazing. It was, you know, one of the best moments at, 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 at Guantanamo uh, because everything is taken from you and that those things came and filled that uh, vacuum within you. I add to Adam's question, please, and ask you one thing that comes across very strongly in the book is the role that your religious faith played. And even in the scene I described a minute ago of the interrogator offering you all sorts of riches, it, it's a striking contrast between his concern of angering Washington, D.C., and that's the most important thing to him. But you describe inwardly, um, I don't know, would, would you call it praying at the time, of calling out to Allah for guidance in that moment? And that's consistent throughout the book with you and the other inmates there. That I was also struck by the way, whenever you would have a list of demands, uh, for the guards to stop desecrating the Quran was always on the list. And, and that's really striking because 
I think if I was in that situation, my concerns were very much about, you know, I don't know if I'd, I'd have that kind of strength of faith in anything to put that, that kind of demand on a list. I'd want, you know, the, the other things like the phone calls and the, the torture to stop and all the rest, but this, this sense of religious faith, um, it, it comes across very strongly and particularly at a time when Islam was being uh, demonized across the world and the, like as the the attacks were seen as a purely Islamic event and arising out of fundamentalism so it, it, the book really touched me in that way of how you could lean into that that Islamic faith for we, the strength there. could you describe that a bit please families and faith become part of our life not or religion not, not in a way people think like those Muslim extremists wherever I mean, those things we heard, we only hear in the news, and we had to learn interrogation rooms, basically. So, and people get the wrong idea and concept. So, religion, especially when we when you become in those situation, so I think that situation also brought us. Also, when you're living under attack, someone because it's part of you, someone disrespect your religion, I can use you as a Muslim and your religion. You you, you need to know more. So some of us like, okay, we need to know more, like what's going on here. We stick more to our religion, but also to defend our to defend our religion that was going on there. Because even like when I remember when the guards, one of the guards took the Bible, because they used to give us the Bible too in the library, and he tried to to show us that he doesn't care. We splash him, said like you cannot do it in front of us, because for us, still the Bible, one of the holy books. So, yeah, and as much we respect it as much as we respect the Holy Quran. So, but for us, at that, when, when our religion was used a way of the torture in the interrogation room, compromising uh, that, you know, the, uh, it was um, used to, uh, to torture the prisoners, to, to, to provoke us all the time. So, of course, the only thing you like, you, we, we need to defend that. You, you would stop uh, doing this. Uh, it was done systematically, you know, it just to pressure to pressure you. But also at the same time, they want to know how you how would you react. If also it it was also like it was based on their judgment. How do you react? If you react, if you something, yeah, he's he's that kind of person. Again, like people who did nothing get reported. People who did something, they get reported. But in a, in a personal level, for me. One of the things that you're about to survive is going to was our faith. Because when someone control every aspect of your life, I remember one of the interrogators, they invited me to the, uh, he called me to the interrogation room. He said, your file on the desk of George W. Bush, you're not leaving, you will die here. As young, I was so young, like, I'm not that sophisticated. I said, I guess give him a simple example. I said, do you think if you're President George W. Bush, if he got diarrhea, would he control his asshole? I said no. I said okay. He has no control. My faith said in that in my in the in the in my God in my in the hand of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. If I said that, <laughs> he just he keep pissed off basically. So basically, it was also the the guard interrogators tried to use our faith and our religion against us, and uh, you know sometimes they would test you. They would bring a females, and she would try to. If you don't look, that means you're extremist. Or because also we come from a conservative, mostly conservative families, like a tribal, you know, we have when we took the women, not just any just we'll look at the floor, it just it's the way it is. So if you do look at, at her, that means you are a terrorist. And 
you get the, this kind of, uh, of the notion and idea. But also they want to break you. So uh, sometimes they would um, put porn magazines on the uh, photos on the floor, on the uh, wall. Sometimes they would bring, uh, bring uh, play porn uh, movies and they like force you to watch. And sometimes they would also play uh, gays, uh, porn, whatever they like. Uh, you know, they like they think that will break you. So what they did, they make you more to committed to your religion because when someone puts you in a box, solitary confinement. Imagine you live twenty four hours. Literally, it's a metal box. You have nothing. They can either dark or bright light, temperature either cold or hot, and sometimes when we stick, we find find something. Uh, there is like tr tranquility in our heart. We stick to our religion, reading the Holy Quran, praying, fasting. Imagine the food was little, yet we fast. And the like said, God, how would you survive? You know, I wouldn't survive for five minutes, literally. Even now, I ask myself how I how I didn't try turn crazy. It, for me, when I tell people, it wasn't, there was something, you know, honestly. So there was something like, keep us in that place. But also faith, but also we had each other. Try to defend ourselves, fight for, for, for each other. And, you know, one of the things, that, the, the, the beautiful lesson I learned at Guantanamo, I went through stages. I went through fear, anger, hate, grudge. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through them. It is a way, in those places, in prison, you, no matter what, you have to go through them. But it's up to you to imprison yourself at any stage, at any emotion. So when I experienced it all, then when I get, there was also, there was light at the end of the tunnel, I get out of it. So people ask me like, do you say, I don't, I didn't hate them. If I, if you say George W. Bush, what do you say to him? I said nothing, you know, just, he lost his humanity. I, I pity him, literally. And I still believe in people's, you know, people, good uh, they have good in their hearts you know but it's one of the things that i learned at guantanamo just to clear your heart and i feel peace inside my heart i feel you know i have no grudge of hurt against anyone you know and smile happy <laughs> so that's that's one of the beautiful lesson uh, lessons i learned at, uh, at guantanamo so when we live with each other you feel your faith become under attack, people react collectively because that would bring people, all Muslims, and those target your faith like, okay, that's what unites you. So we were, okay, this is, you need to stop that. It was hard, you know, if, if it's accidentally, it's something, you know, happens sometimes, girls did it unintentional, and we understand, you know, it's human being. But when it was done intentionally, when it was done, we have to show them that we react. We didn't, we didn't accept that. And it was a way of, you feel the way they tame you, the way they they, uh, they want to control you. So it was also in, in, in some way, in some, in some, uh, in some way. Uh, in 2010, when we moved to the communal living, imagine from 2002, we became 
part of each other's life. Now we start our brain, our start constructing a new memories, a new emotion, a new relationship, a new knowledge, but everything related to Guantanamo. So they used to also move us around a lot, camps, blocks and camps. So when we move in the Kemen living in 2010, we start talking about the shared life we have, but everything related to Guantanamo. Oh, I remember that person at that block, at that camp. I remember that person, the hunger strike and the first in the... So <laughs> when we met, we, we start going deeper and deeper in our imprisonment, reliving those moments. But at the same time, this what even now when I talk to, we have like three WhatsApp groups, former Guantanamo things. Like, do you remember that brother in that block? <laughs> because Guantanamo become part of our life, you know, and become part of shape our mindset, our, you know, way of thinking, shaped our behavior to some extent. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when Obama signed that executive order that you mentioned before, you, you, you had every right to hate your captors, to hate people. But when I read this part of the book, I said, well, that, you know, this is proof that everyone was wrong about these people, including Mansour Adifi. And you surely met with a lawyer named Andy Hart. Oh, yeah. And according yeah, yeah. to your experience, Andy Hart was deathly afraid of you because they told you, they told him that you were some dangerous, deadliest prisoner in Guantanamo. And instead, he was in shock and in awe to meet you. And you were approximately, I think, 110 pounds at that point. Can you talk more about your meeting with Andy Hart? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in 2009, they appointed a lawyer for me because I didn't have a lawyer before that. So I get a, I get a letter like, hey, I am that person. I am your federal lawyer I would like to meet, I will be that day and appointment. So I asked my friend, Fauzi Kuwaiti, I said, hey, because Kuwaitis have lawyers. I said, suddenly I have a lawyer. Why? I never, I never, I tried, I never asked a lawyer for a long time. I tried before that lawyer said, no. I said, Mansoor, you know what? Go. You're not losing nothing. I said, but why? Like, because I was in hunger strike and hmm. so on. And I'm like, why now? I mean, why? <laughs> it just, after seven years, or, or yes, seven or, or 80, 80 years. Then I, the guard said, hey, you have a reserv reservation. I was I was in uh, five echo, solitary confinement. I was because I was on force feeding. So when I was on force feeding, they, we were in punishment. It's okay. They took me to camp five, like a meeting room. I sat on, I sat on the, they chained me to the floor and Shane my hand to the table. So just, I want to meet this person. I just, I want just to thank him. And I said like, I don't want a lawyer basically. So then I, uh, when I was waiting, I saw a guy because the door has like a small window and I was looking and there's someone there who was talking to the guards, looking at the window, opening the door, looking at me. And and he said, sir, are you four for one? I said, yes. And uh, I'm like, are you sure? And when they came, they came in and I said, are you the lawyers? Like I, I stood up and 
shake hands with them like hey welcome <laughs> and I was like shaking <laughs> and I, at that time like I didn't know what's going on it just then hey I am Andy this is the interpreter and this Amy hi Amy I said okay welcome I said you know uh, you didn't have a lawyer before I am your lawyer he was so nervous like sweating talking like I'm like okay relax and I told him, why now? I mean, first of all, I go, thank you so much. I thank him. I was like, talking like, I'm talking to you now. Like, I wasn't trying to be like, whatever. Just like, yeah, first of all, thank you for coming and welcome. And, you know, and, but why now? I mean, he said, you know, now Obama came, Democrats, they make sure everyone has a, like, a legal representation. And I said, but how can you help? I mean, like, because I told him people here, the lawyer hasn't got anyone released. And I told him, if you convince me, and we still like have a discussion. I told him, if you if you convince me that that you will help, I have no problem. And he was like, he was looking at me. They were looking at, at each other. Like the more I talk, he like, are you four for one? Are you like, I said, yeah. <laughs> Why? He said, well, I was expecting that. And later on, he told me, you know, the guard told him, you know, this guy, he's a detainee leader, he's an investigator, he's very dangerous, you know, like, be careful, guys, he might, like, try to kill you, blah, blah, blah. He said, when I come to the room, I saw a tiny guy, and when, he's, when he came, he's like, welcome, thank you so much. Even before they left, I said, hey, look, if I say something, or there's something that wrong, I'm so, I'm sorry, just... You know, I we have been here. And Andy almost cried, you know, because he was he was a very nice guy. And I told him, if you come, I might meet you, but and as a lawyer, it's just someone to chat with you. I liked him from the beginning because he, he was very nice. And the first time I met a civilian guy, basically, not who's not interrogator. So then the second time they came and we talked and we become friends, we become best friends. <laughs> <laughs> sometime I would tell him hey Andy look like we'll become friends I said look I'm going to ask the guard to turn me to that bad person so he said no he can't be that person <laughs> so yeah it was amazing it was one of the hardest moments when he you know when he died yeah just you know I remember that day I, I had like they told me I had a phone call and his friend Carlos uh, he told me I have bad news for you. I said, what? He said, your friend died. Like, what? I, I just, I dropped and started crying. Like, I couldn't. So the guards, I was crying all because I didn't care. I was like, I just get out. And one of the guards, hey, man. Like, he tried to be like, hey, what's going on there? And the female guard told him, like, have you tried to sympathize with him? I said, I do not give a shit about your sympathy. Like, I didn't need it. It just, you know, I didn't care about it. Like, she was like, she hurt me because when she's like, I tried to sympathize with him, you know. Uh, anyway, I, it gets one of the hardest moments. And that woman came in the wrong time. I said, like, you know, I cry because my friend Americans died. You know, that way I cry. He's not a detainee. He's not a Muslim. He's not a Yemeni. He's not a family. He's just my friend. He's an American too. Just that you know. So, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm still in touch with his family. Oh, yeah. beautiful family, yeah, and uh, he was, you know, an amazing human being and soul, and so Andy Hart was, 
we had, you know, we spent time together. Like I used to write to him letters, part of the book, stories. And so we never talk about the cakes work. We just talk about our families, about yeah. life. And he sent me books, dictionaries, CDs. And he helped me to enroll one of the universities in the United States. I was accepted, but the government did not. They said, no, he cannot. He can't uh, enroll to study. Richard, do you have any final questions for him? Um, well, I'd like to know what Mansur is doing now, particularly well, with I'd his like activities of cycling race. But maybe just prior to that, cycling race. I know you've but ended up in Serbia, so rather that, tragically, you're not able to go home to Yemen because the US are fighting a proxy war via Saudi Arabia there, which is obviously another massive blow. So maybe you could describe how you ended up in Serbia. Maybe you and sort of how what you life is like for you there. Serbia. And then finally, and we'll come on to, I know you're involved like in a kind of cycling marathon we'll come on to, to do with the remaining detainees. So could you describe that, please? Detainees. So could you describe that, please? The bizarre of this story, the ironic of my story, I was sold to the Americans. I, uh, they dragged me to Guantanamo for around 15 years. When they came to release me, they forcibly released me to Serbia. They said, no, they have, you have no choice. You will read it in the, this is my behind me, stickers here, concealed stickers. Uh, this is Life After Guantanamo book. I'm working on the new book called Life After Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon, uh, Amazon is going to publish audible book, audible uh, audio book, Letters from Guantanamo. So since I got out, Alhamdulillah, I, it was really hard and difficult because when Trump was elected, many countries just they felt they are not they weren't obliged to do anything. I went in hunger strike here twice. The first time for forty eight days. The second time twenty five days. I was arrested a few times, interrogated, blah blah blah. But I didn't give up. You know, alhamdulillah, I managed to finish my bachelor degree. My thesis was about rehabilitation and reintegration of former Guantanamo detainees and so into social life. And we published the book in 2020, Don't Forget Us Here. You know, even the story of the book, I, I will show you here. This is the manuscript I wrote in Guantanamo. This is the original, it's in English. Mm. Can you see it? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And these are the stamps. You, you can see he also thrives by his stamps here. And Yes. Mm -hmm. So this is the part of the original draft of the book, Don't Forget Us Here. And uh, the name, the last night I spent with my brothers in Camp 5, their last word was, don't forget us here. I said, no, I won't. So this is how the book starts. And I'll end it here, mm. don't forget us here. And also this is my, uh, this is my, my uh, graduation thesis, rehabilitation and reintegration mm. of Guantanamo detainees. So also uh, last year I went on, yeah, since I got out, I have been campaigning, writing, doing interviews. And based on my thesis, we established a program called Guantanamo Survivors Fund. And I hope people can donate to those to this pro program because you know there is no kind of rehabilitation reintegration program and many people struggle no health care no jobs no support some of them are homeless some of them are like 
dying because there is no no healthcare and so on. So we started the program along with some uh, NGOs in the United States and Guantanamo lawyers and tried to raise some fund and help those like in uh, emergencies. And um, last year I went on a ride bike, on a bike ride, sorry, for 400 kilometers, right? To close Guantanamo, this was a campaign. And this year, inshallah, I'm preparing to go on a marathon for around like 46 miles, again, to close Guantanamo. It's campaign 2023. So since I got out, I have been doing all this activism. I work for CAGE as Guantanamo Project Coordinator. I work for uh, uh, Guantanamo Survivors Fund Outreach Director. I I am part of Guantanamo Coalition to Close Guantanamo, part of Witness Against Torture. I am part of uh, UK Networks to Close Guantanamo. And uh, yeah, so I have taken you know, kind of oath to fight for the closure of Guantanamo and justice for Guantanamo. Which is Gu when we say justice for Guantanamo, it means acknowledgement, apology, uh, reparation, and accountability. And in September, I will, yeah, this year I will finish my master's degree. And my thesis is about closing Guantanamo. Um, in September, we, we, we have a meeting in uh, Brussels in the EU parliament. Again, about to talk about the closure of Guantanamo. So, yeah, if you see my room, it's like Guantanamo lab. Writing, I have, I'm, I, I also I work on a new book live after Guantanamo, and we st we we are developing a TV show also about Guantanamo. So this small uh, small project. Yeah, and uh, this is why I'm talking to you now. You know, my final question for you, Mansoor, is that. You know, the first thoughts of you by everyone at Guantanamo was that you were Addo, an Egyptian general. You headed the old 55-hour brigade under orders of Osama bin Laden. You were tortured. You were debased. You were mentally put to so much anguish to the near point of death by camp guards, by administrators, and by camp directors. What are your final thoughts on these people? You know, I have made peace with Guantanamo and I'm I'm trying to channel Guantanamo in a positive way in my life to bring awareness to these people. My thought about these, they're humans and humans made mistakes. And I wish, you know, like that those people can acknowledge what happened. You know, Guantanamo is not about me or about Muslim prison, about us. All because if you look, Guantanamo becomes simple of torture, injustice, lawlessness. Even now, tyrants who target minorities or target uh, opposition, they have the same setup like Guantanamo, uh, detaining people, torturing them, you know, uh, link them to some kind of terrorist or terrorism, and so on. And when it comes from the United States, a country that preach democracy, human rights, and equality, it can give them some kind of encouragement. It gives them some kind of assurance. You can have your own Guantanamo. If American, if America, if American uh, government can have that place, why not us? So 
Quaternum is about us all. It's not about me. It's about us, about our humanity as humans. As for those people who uh, abuse us and torture us, I, I believe they are also victims of of the system. And I and as I told you, we were not just the victims. There are also guards, camp staff who were also victims of Guantanamo. But those who actually, uh, you know, did the torture and so on, I I pray for their guidance. May Allah put some guidance in their heart, and may Allah Subhanahu wa Taala guide them to the right path. You know. I have no hate or grudge against them whatsoever. I, on the contrary, I really pity them because being a human, being sympathizing to others, being it is, it is, it is a beautiful aspect of our life, our existence, of of of, of who we are. Mansour Adifi, serial number four four one, author of "Don't Forget Us Here," human rights activist, brother of the human race. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much to Richard and to our dear uh, listeners. Yes, thank you very thank much. Thank you, Mansa. It's been an honor.